Thank you again for the, for the spiritual food we're about to receive. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 17. We'll look at verses 17 through 19 this morning. John 17, verses 17 through 19. We'll read these verses and then we'll begin. Jesus praying once again for his disciples, specifically speaking of those disciples there who are following him at the time. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they themselves also may be sanctified in the truth. Here we have a portion of the prayer where the Lord Jesus is praying for his disciples, specifically in the context of the work they will do. And this is also a place we have to be a little bit careful as we try to interpret a particular idea and one of the particular words that's used in this section of Scripture. Notice in verse 17, Jesus prays to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. And then in verse 19, he says, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. As we will note this morning, we need to really look carefully at that word sanctify. And that word can trip us up a little bit if we're not kind of seeing it properly in its uh, kind of broad and general definition and in the context of this prayer. Some of your other versions may not use the word sanctify. It may use uh, a different word, but this is typically in the Greek, the word that is translated sanctify. And it brings us to an idea that first of all, Number one, Jesus prayed that his disciples be set apart. Jesus prayed that his disciples be set apart. Now we have to recognize that the word sanctify has this general meaning with a broad and specific usage. And that word sanctify is to mean set apart or consecrate. Now most apart, uh, most of us think about that word sanctify and we have to be careful not to think about it in the sense of the word sanctification. There's a difference here between the meaning of the word sanctify and our doctrine of sanctification. And so when Jesus is using the word sanctify that he sanctify them and then for their, their sakes I sanctify myself, Jesus is not saying that he performed the doctrine of sanctification on himself, okay? And we'll see why, because there's a sense in which we're using this very uh, kind of broad meaning of the word sanctify, and it's to set apart, to set something apart. Um, you know, there are times when you may be uh, working with something, whether you're in the kitchen, or one of you ladies, and you begin to set some things aside because you know you're going to use it for a particular part of the dish that you're making later on. You set those things apart. Uh, if a man is, is working in his, his, uh, you know, his office, he may be setting some things apart so he can do 
this work he's going to do in just a little while, or if he's working in his shop or something like that, he's setting some things apart. And that's this general meaning of the word, to set apart. And we have in the context of the whole of the scripture, just to give you an idea of some other places, Exodus 13, 2, when God has been dealing with the Egyptian nation uh, about their uh, enslavement of the Israelites, and the Israelites are being dealt with about what's about to come. In verse 2 of chapter 13, it says, Sanctify to me every firstborn. Now, this is leading up to the idea of the Passover. Sanctify to me every firstborn, the first offspring of every womb among the sons of Israel, both of man and beast, it belongs to me. Now, here we see the word sanctify used is the firstborn of Israel. They were set apart as a remembrance to the Lord's grace and power in dealing with their captivity in Egypt. The Lord says, look, set these firstborn apart, sanctify them, set them apart, because they will be a remembrance for you of what I'm going to do through the Passover. And the Passover was dealing with the shed blood of the lamb, put on the doorposts, and the context of uh, the firstborn of the Egyptians uh, being killed because Pharaoh's heart was so hardened and the people of Egypt, their heart was so hardened toward the Israelites. And God is saying, set these firstborn apart. So... That when I get you out of Egypt, you'll look at your firstborn and you'll remember my grace to you as a people. Set them apart. Another place in Nehemiah 13, 22. It says, And I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come as gatekeepers to sanctify the Sabbath day. So it's the commandment to the Levites that they want to purify themselves. They're going to be the gatekeepers to be able to set the Sabbath day apart. The Levites were the, those of the priesthood, and they were to be those who led in the worship of God in the sense of the Sabbath and in the rituals. And the commandment here is that they be the ones to be able to lead in such a way that they set the Sabbath day apart. If we understand the context here, you, you see the word sanctify being used. It, it can't be in the sense of the doctrine of sanctification, personal sanctification, right? Um, you can't take the Sabbath day and personally put it into the doctrine of sanctification. It, 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 that's not, it's the sense of setting it apart. Upon Nehemiah's return, the Levites are commanded to set that day apart. 1 Peter 3.15. Peter, and I didn't put the whole section in here. You can go back and look at 1 Peter 3. But in verse 15, the first portion of it, he says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. He's telling them all these things to be careful not to do. And then he starts to tell them what you need to look at. And the first and most important thing he says sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Well, if you're trying to make that apply to the doctrine of sanctification, that's not going to make any sense. He's saying, Peter instructed believers to set Christ apart in their hearts to defend the faith. That's the context of the passage. So we must see that the word sanctify is not always expressly and explicitly referring to the doctrine of sanctification. 
That's important because you'll miss the meaning of the text. And especially in a place like this. Now that's not to say in some implicit way there's not some application to the doctrine of sanctification in this text. But the actual portion of this text in the prayer, it's not pointing to saying anything about the disciples in the doctrine of sanctification and the Lord Jesus in the doctrine of sanctification. It's not speaking of that which is the process by which a repenting believer is being molded and fashioned by the Holy Spirit in the matter of personal holiness to strive against sin and walk in the light of God's word. These few verses illustrate the basic meaning of the word sanctify and its most general use. Most often, it is being used in the sense of something... The word sanctify, I didn't put these verses out to you, but in the Old Testament, when they set apart all of the, uh, the different ritual pieces for the Holy of Holies and the temple use, they would say, sanctify those things. They would list them out. Well, that's not applying to the doctrine of sanctification. It's saying set them apart. They're going to have a particular use. Set them apart. Most often it is being used in the sense of something or someone being set apart for a particular work. If you want to take some time to read a little bit on this, uh, I encourage you. D.A. Carson has a really good little section uh, in his, um, uh, his commentary on the Gospel of John. And I think it's helpful in, in noting this. Uh, he does some really good work there. Um, and so... When we're looking here at this case of the word in John 17 and John 19, we need to note the general use of this word. It brings us to a second point this morning. Number two, Jesus prayed that his disciples be set apart for work. Number one, Jesus prayed that his disciples be set apart. He says to the Father, sanctify them. Sanctify them. Then he is really giving the context, sanctify them for a work. Jesus prayed, number two, that his disciples be set apart for a work. Look carefully at verse 18. The son prays in verse 18 and says, As you sent me into the world... I also have sent them into the world. Jesus is giving recognition that he himself had been set apart for work. As you, Father, sent me into the world. The Father sent the Son into the world. Once again, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one in essence... Yet, in three subsistences, the same essence, yet there are distinct subsistences, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father cannot be the Son. The Son is the Son. The Father is the Father. The Spirit cannot be the Father or the Son. The Spirit is the Spirit. Yet, all three in one essence, working together, and yet we see 
the distinction among these three persons that Jesus is saying, Father, you sent me into the world. The son was given a work to do and he was sent into the world. And then he also says, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. The son sent the disciples into the world. Now, there's already been a portion of that sending that's been taking place. It's been leading up. And even in the Gospels, there's been some progressive revelation. They've been sent out to preach. They've been sent out and some of them have performed miracles. Remember, they even come back at some times and say, we saw some others doing these things. What do we do about this? So there's already that element of progressive revelation being worked out that the disciples have been sent out. But Jesus is even giving a context for the future work of the disciples after his resurrection. The day of Pentecost is coming. And upon that day when the spirit comes down like tongues of fire in the sense of, all of these people of different regions are able now to hear the word of God preached in their own dialect, an actual known language. Peter is preaching. He's preaching in his known tongue and the Phrygian hears in his Phrygian known tongue. It wasn't unintelligible languages it was known languages. And here Jesus is giving a sense of this is about to happen. The son sent the disciples into the world. It's already been happening and it's going to even happen more. So Jesus prayed that his disciples be set apart for a work to be sent into the world. The disciples were sent to proclaim the truth. Now, first of all, I want to say something about the proclamation. And I've already alluded to that from Acts chapter 1 and 2. But if you go on to read Acts 3 and 4, the noting of how the proclamation goes forward. Not only are people hearing in their own language at the day of Pentecost, but they continue to preach even when they are told not to. even when they are threatened that they will be imprisoned. This is a serious work they're being sent to do. The son knows how serious this is. This is why he is praying for them. Think about it. The very son of God, right here, right here in this text, is shown to us to be praying for his disciples. He knows that they need to be prayed for, that they would be set apart. He knows that the Father will be the one protecting them. Remember, He's already said, I kept them. Now you keep them. I've got to work. I've got to go do and you keep them. He knows this work will be a dangerous work. He knows the world will hate the work. And he's lifting them up. That they should be set apart.
The disciples were not only sent to proclaim, but they were sent to proclaim the truth. That leads us to number three. Jesus prayed that his disciples be set apart in the truth. Verse 17, go back up. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Set them apart in the truth. Your word is truth. Notice here that in verse 17, the idea of truth is not something subjective. First of all, the Lord Jesus asks and prays that they be set apart in the truth. There's something very specific given there, the truth. It's not just any truth, but it's the truth. And then secondly, he says, your word is truth. This truth is based upon the word of God. And to this point, no, the disciples don't have all of Paul's letters. But they have Jesus' preaching, which is built upon the whole of the New Testament. And after his resurrection, he's going to show his followers how all of the New Testament is pointing to him. Excuse me, all of the Old Testament is pointing to him. This is not just any truth. It's the truth. And the truth is from the very word of God. And the word of God is that which God condescends to give to his people. This is important for us that we see in this prayer of the Lord Jesus, he's not just leaving the idea of truth up to something subjective. Much of Christianity today lives in a world of subjectivity. There are lots and lots of churches out there that have gone so far that where the Bible is clear there's only two genders, many churches have decided we can't really know. There's certain objective truths. Now, I'm, I, just, I know I hit a cultural hot topic for a second, but I'm just using that as an illustration. No wonder we're struggling with the doctrine of salvation. We're not even sure what genders are there anymore. When the Bible, for Christians, it ought to just be that simple. I mean, really, if you're a really good biologist, it ought to be simple. Okay? That's the common grace that God has given to the world that the world is ignoring right now. But for Christians, it, it shouldn't even... There shouldn't even be a debate in the Christian community. That's why there may be such thing as that which is genuine Christianity and that which is not. Jesus here is praying, not leaving things up to subjectivity. He's saying there is a truth. I'm asking that you set them apart in the truth. And it is your word. It's identified here. Your word is truth. That's Jesus praying to the Father. Your word is truth. Now we have the full completion. The closed canon of that word in our new covenant age. That means any teaching 
that is looking for something extraordinary and bringing things in outside of the very word of God is going astray in some way and it's going into subjectivity. And when you do that, you're going against the idea of what it means to be a disciple who is set apart. So we have to see very plainly. Number one, truth is the means used to set the disciples apart for their work. Under number three, I have letter A. I don't know how you do your outlines. Um, number one, letter A, or letter Z, if that's how you do it in a postmodern world. Truth is the means used to set the disciples apart for their work. Truth is the means. Now, understand the importance of what a, a means is. It is that tool or conduit to get to that particular place. It is that tool to use in the work that you have to do. If you ask some of the people in the church to come and help you, uh, put a deck on the back of your house, and they showed up with uh, computers and pencils and baseball gloves, and volleyballs and tennis rackets and said, we're here to do the work. We've got the tools. What would you say to them? Right? There's a particular means, a tool that would be used to do the work. You would expect to see some other things. Maybe you would see a computer if you had the engineer for the deck that showed up. You'd see some pencils, maybe, marking some boards. But baseball bats and tennis rackets and baseball gloves would not be what you'd be looking for. You'd be looking for hammers and saws. The disciples, the Lord Jesus, is praying that they be set apart for the work. He's also praying that they will have the means to do the work. And the means to do that work is the truth. And the truth is the word of God. Truth is that means used to set the disciples apart for the work. And think about this first. The disciples had to have this truth applied to their lives for them to be actually set apart for the work. The same truth that they will use is the same truth that they need so that they can and will be set apart. If that can't be applied to them properly, they will not be able to apply it properly to others. And that leads us to this second subpoint: Truth is the means used to set the disciples apart in their work. Truth is the means used to set the disciples apart in their work. Number one, for their work. Number two, in their work. They have to have it applied to them first. 
Now, once it's applied to them, they can be set apart in their work, and that truth is now the tool that they will use to go about and do their work. The same tool that was the means to deal with them, that they could be set apart, they will now use that same tool and apply it as they go out and do their work, and they're being sent into the world. It gives us something very important to understand that disciples weren't sent out without the means to do the work. Not only was Jesus praying that they be set apart for the work, and there would be proper means used to bring them to that setting apart, but he's also saying they need to be set apart so that they can go and accomplish that work. We need to recognize the grace of our Lord here to give us the proper tools to go about doing the work we're set apart to do. Now, here's a place where you can move into some application that does deal with our own sanctification. Yet the word sanctify here doesn't mean sanctification. But there is a sense in which the very truth in our the very truth as a means to our being set apart, or even these disciples being set apart is a truth that will deal with us in a way that we will go and carry out that work. Now the disciples had a specific work they were being set aside to do and that was proclaim the truth. They would be going out all over the nation of Israel, surrounding regions. Eventually the gospel would be taken all over the Roman world. And they needed the means to do it. It shows us something else practical about the need for prayer. If our Lord would pray in this way for his disciples, and we get to verse 20, he speaks further not only of those specific disciples at the time, but for those also who believe in me through their word. We, we need to be set apart in this way. And we need to pray that the Lord would set us apart rightly for our work. Sometimes we can come to this place, separate ourselves from the things of the world for a little while, but then not walk outside of this building and begin to apply those things in the work that we've been set apart to do. Christian husbands, fathers, moms, wives, Christian children. What does it mean to be a Christian in the workplace? You have a work to do and you've been set apart to do it in this world. And you are in need of that truth as the means to do it. But you are also in need of the means of prayer. If our Lord Jesus would pray for these things, why would we not, as those who are professing believing Christians, that the Spirit of God indwells them, why would we not pray and follow in our Lord's footsteps and ask that the Father would set us apart in the truth, in the truth of his word, Is that a prayer that we regularly pray 
asking that we be those who would be set apart in the truth in all of our lives, in the different aspects of our lives? Are we praying for that? I think sometimes we can kind of just go about our week and we don't stop and pray and ask something like this. Whatever comes our way, we just kind of deal with it and fight through it, but we don't stop and ask, Lord, may I deal with this as one of your disciples that I be set apart in this work that I'm called to as a Christian in this particular area of life. But it also means that I'm praying and asking the Lord to give me a heart to love his word and follow in it and meditate on it. Truth is a means, but prayer is a means as well. And prayer is a means that our Lord is showing us is a good and necessary means. If our Lord, the perfect Son of God, would make use of prayer in this way, why would we not ask that the Father deal with us according to his word? That we would be those set apart. To live it, to act in those ways. Well, I want to leave you with three observations this morning. Number one, remember the disciples' work was to further show the rebellion of the Jews. Remember the disciples' work was to further show the rebellion of the Jews. This truth that they would proclaim, they would go out and proclaim. They were already proclaiming it, and when they proclaimed it, there were those who were listening and were appreciative, and then there were those in the Jewish community who hated it. They hated Jesus, and they hated those who followed him. And that goes on all the way into the book of Acts. When you read the account of the preaching of Peter and John in the book of Acts in chapters 2, 3, and 4, you begin to realize how much these Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, they hated this preaching of the Nazarene Jesus. This was the will of God that the rebellion of the Jews would be shown. But let's not just single the Jews out. Let's understand that this shows the rebellion of the Gentiles as well. For as the word of God goes forward, the preaching of God's truth goes forward to the Roman world and today it's all over this globe. There are many who do not believe and they reject it. And they, they, some of them just outright hate it. Now some of them will give philosophical rejection. Well, <laughs> And they can list all their stuff and blah, 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 blah. Some just outright hate it, though. They hate the discussion of it. They hate that anybody would even think that way. They would brand believers as just idiotic, stupid, whatever. 
just keep adding those adjectives up of negativity. This shows the rebellion not only of the Jews but of the Gentiles. The rebellion of the sinful nature. This is really Paul's argument in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Romans. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He goes from the Jews to the Gentiles. He deals with all the blessings the Jews had in hearing of these truths over a period of time and being brought up in it. And yet, when the truth has been brought into the Gentile world and this light has been put out there before them, they reject it too. And so all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we have to remember the disciples' work had a purpose and it was to further show or reveal the rebellion of the Jews and the Gentiles. But secondly, remember the disciples' work was to further the gathering of the elect. Remember the disciples' work was to further the gathering of the elect. This was including the Jews and the Gentiles. There would be those among the Jews who were of the elect and they would be saved. They were gathered in, the great gathering. The shepherd gets his sheep, doesn't lose one of them, even goes out to Find the one. The gathering of the Gentiles, the gospel goes forward. I mean, I spent time this week just reading back over and over and over again the first six, seven chapters of Acts. Um, Just over and over. Can you imagine, just for a moment, imagine the picture The disciples are are a part of this fulfillment of this prayer. They're probably in the hearing of this prayer. They heard the Lord Jesus pray these words. Here's the Lord Jesus praying to the Father. And the disciples, who's he talking? He's God. And they know. He's praying to the Father. It's not too long after this prayer. They're scattered. They deny Him. Then He's raised from the dead. And upon His resurrection, they meet with Him again. And after 40 days with His disciples, He ascends. And then after His ascension, there's this time of preaching when the tongues of fire that that light down upon them as they preach in the sense of what took place. The disciples, they become a part of this work of bringing this truth out. They've been set apart for this work to go into the world. They preach this truth, and as they preach it, there are many who believed. The book of Acts talks about the many who believed, the numbers. They were coming by the thousands to repent and believe in Christ. The disciples are seeing these Gentile pagan people who the Jews considered worse than a dog, bowing the knee to the one living God through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the disciples' work was to further the gathering of the elect, and they could see that happening. 
That's why it ought to be a joy for us when we see even one person profess faith. When we see even one person baptized, professing faith, it ought to just enliven our souls. Because we've been a part in some way of the gathering of the elect. This day, there are believers in this room as a part of the, that gathering, worshiping the one true living God. We've been set apart. And in God's grace, we're setting apart this day to worship Him. What the Levite priests used to do to have to lead the nation of Israel there, to teach them to know their God and lead them there. Now Jeremiah's covenant in Jeremiah 31 is made true. I don't come here to have to lead you and pound you to get you to believe. You come saying, I believe! And I'm worshiping the one true living God. It's the gathering of the elect. It ought to be a joy to be here. To be a part of this day that's set aside. The same joy that the disciples saw in their work, we ought to see in ours. You know, it's one of our part of our work as being those who are sanctified, those who are set apart. Part of our work is to come and worship. We need the word, the truth. We need to pray as our Lord did. And we need to worship. And we're set apart for it. Hey, have you ever seen, and I, I, I use I, this, these illustrations a lot, you ladies may, please don't. Have you ever seen an athlete that you just looked at this person do that particular sport and you thought, good grief, they were born for that. I've got a friend, he hits a golf ball, and it's almost like that's the thing his body was born to do. It's amazing. No real lessons. He can just walk up there and, and the ball, and you go, whoa, man, if I could do that. But you've also seen the person, the thing that they were born for. They just hated it and wouldn't do it. And you go, what a waste. What a waste. A person in complete anger in life that turns bitter and all that bitterness enrages their life. And they're not really thankful. They're not really thankful anymore for anything. What a waste. The person who gets caught in some serious addiction in their whole life just becomes about that thing. And it's just like, what, what a waste. The person whose sin, some particular sin, grabs hold of them and they just don't fight against it anymore. And it's just, what a waste. For us as believers, we've been set apart. We've been set apart. What a waste it would be for us to not strive against sin. Not to hate it. What a waste it would be to look at the Lord's day as if it's drudgery. Oh, I don't want to get out of bed this morning and go worship God. This ought to be one of the most enjoyable days that we look forward to every week. Because we've been set apart for it. 
It's what we're meant to do. And one day, after the return of Christ, it will be the main focus of all we do in everything that we do in glory. We will actually be able to worship and glorify God in our work after the return of Christ in a way that we've never done here. It will be the fulfillment of this greatest, greatest purpose that we would be set apart. If you're a believer today, you've been set apart. Remember it. Remember it. Thirdly and lastly, remember the disciples' work further expounded the work of Jesus. Remember the disciples' work was to further show the rebellion of the Jews and Gentiles. Remember the disciples' work was to further the gathering of the elect. And remember the disciples' work was to further expound the work of Jesus. Was to further expound the work of Jesus. Jesus is telling us in verse 19, For their sakes I sanctify myself. Jesus was set apart for a work by the Father. When you read John 10, 31 through 36, Jesus had just said, I and the Father are one. The Jews, after he say that, they're as mad as heck. They pick up stones to stone him. And then Jesus says, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, for a good work, we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. And Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent him into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus says, I've been set apart by the Father to do this work, to come into this world, and now you say I'm the one? When Jesus says here, for their sakes I sanctify myself, he's saying I'm in agreement with the Father. The Father set me apart and sent me into the world. I am in agreement with the Father and I came. I set myself apart to come and do the work in agreement with the Father. The reason he says this in verse 19 is that they themselves also may be sanctified in truth. And what truth was that? It was the truth of the person and the work of the Son. This was the whole setting for what the disciples would do. Their whole work was in the truth of the person and the work of the Son. It goes to John's letter. If you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God who came and lived and died a perfect life, a sinner's death, He was raised on the third day. If you do not believe in His shed blood and righteousness imputed to the account of those who are the elect, then you have missed the whole of the work. If you do not believe in who he is, then you do not believe. 
And this was their work. And as the disciples would go out and do their work, they simply were going to expound the work of Jesus. They would expound it in their preaching and teaching, and they would expound it in their living. It begs a question for us if we claim to be disciples. Do we understand that we've been set apart too? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you've been merciful to us in this day to give us a time to hear your word read and preached, to give us a time to pray unto you, that we could even sing praises unto you. And Lord, we ask now that you would bless the time of the Lord's table, that we would come before you rightly in the person and work of your son Jesus, standing not on our works, standing not on our boasting of our own lives. But Lord, may we have been put down, laid low by the truth of the gospel, that we could stand and rise in true rejoicing to worship and glory in you through your Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.